politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles. Pleasure to be with you today, as always. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, we're available as a podcast. We even stream on YouTube, but boy, we're really happy when you're able to join us live Tuesday afternoons at 1 o'clock right here on KPFK. Broadcasting on 90.7 FM to all of Southern California, from Santa Barbara to San Diego, and live streaming for the world at kpfk.org. I have what promises to be a fascinating program for you today. A wonderful guest, a medical doctor, a psychologist, and a philosopher. No, not three people, one person who is all of those things. Dr. Raymond Moody is my guest, and we're going to talk about NDEs, near-death experience, and the idea of life after life from a pretty empirically scientific and eminently logical point of view. I promise you're going to love this show. And I want to give him as much time as possible, but I also would like to take five minutes at the top of the show to speak about something that uh, has been sticking in my craw, uh, so to speak, for uh, a few days now. One of the benefits of being on the radio is not only speaking to a lot of people, but speaking on behalf of a lot of people. I saw on the news a few days ago, last week, that Elon Musk the Tesla billionaire. I think originally he made his money in PayPal, but he's best known for the Tesla electric car and, of course, his SpaceX program. And I'm a fan of both of those things, especially SpaceX. I just absolutely love the whole idea of a rocket returning to Earth and landing vertically, softly on its tail. It's just such a mind-boggling accomplishment in terms of technology. And yeah, I know the ecological impact of firing rockets and uh, flying airplanes, for that matter. And uh, that concerns me. And I don't think exploring space is the highest priority, as you'll hear in a minute. But it's important. It's significant. And there is enormous uh, benefit. It comes from the research. You could say that about war. That doesn't justify war. So maybe it doesn't justify a space program. But in fact, a lot of wonderful things uh, become available. A GPS, for example. What would you do without GPS? You'd still be pulling over to the side of the road and flipping through your Thomas Brothers uh, map book. Elon Musk has offered to buy Twitter for $43 billion cash. Now, that's an incomprehensible amount of money. 
And he wants to pay that in cash. Imagine counting that out for Twitter. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. $43 billion. Let's just talk about $1 million. That's a lot of money. If you had a million dollars, you'd be a millionaire. What could you do with a million dollars? Well, if you put $1 million into the stock market, even if you only made 5 or let's say 6%, which is a modest return, 6% of a million dollars is $60,000. So just $1 million invested conservatively in the stock market would generate an income of $60,000 a year. You could probably live on that pretty, pretty nicely and never touch the principal. You've still got a million dollars year after year after year. Now, imagine the number 43,000. That's a big number, 43,000 people. That's like a stadium full of people, right? And imagine each of them with $1 million. So what I want you to visualize is 43,000 piles of $1 million. That's $43 billion. And Elon Musk wants to pay that in cash for Twitter. For a toy. And I started thinking, wouldn't that end world hunger? And so I did a little Google search, and it turns out that five months ago, somebody apparently confronted Elon Musk about this very idea. And he said, well, if the UN can show me how I could end world hunger, I'd consider it. I'd sell stock in Tesla, which is a private corporation, and raise the money. Yeah, like he needs to raise more money. And so the United Nations World Food Program in November of last year, responded saying, in fact, $6.6 billion would not only eliminate world hunger for a year, but infuse significant amounts of money into local marketplaces around the world that would then infuse cash in turn to local farmers and could jumpstart a program of self-sufficiency. Now think about it. The United Nations is asking for $6.6 billion, which is 2% of Elon Musk's wealth. And he's willing to spend $43 billion in cash to buy Twitter, but he hasn't responded to the UN from five months ago. As near as I can tell, there's, there's no evidence that he responded to the UN World Food Program say, yeah, saying, yeah, well, in fact, 6.6 billion would do it. That would end world hunger. And that, contrary to popular opinion, would actually control overpopulation. Starvation doesn't curb overpopulation. It actually promotes overpopulation. When people in the third world see their children dying, they have more children. The best birth control is to feed people or allow them to feed themselves and to educate them. People who are well-fed and well-educated have fewer children. So let's get that clear, all right? So this would ripple out and have enormous uh, benefits. Then I started thinking, well, 
Hell, what is the American military budget? It's $763 billion per year, when $6.6 billion of that would solve world hunger. We don't need Elon Musk. We could just not buy three B-1 bombers next year. Just three B-1 bombers would be enough to end world hunger. I don't hear this being discussed. And uh, I think you might want to jump on the Google machine and do a little bit of research and see if I'm wrong about this. And it's not just the third world. One in four American households are food insecure. One in six Americans are food insecure. Tell me capitalism works when one in six people are hungry and people can be fully employed, working 40 hours a week and still not be able to afford housing. And it's a simple fact that the majority of people faced with a dilemma of do I pay rent or do I buy groceries will go hungry and pay the rent. So by the time a family or an individual becomes homeless, they're already hungry. Republicans in Congress are working to defund Meals on Wheels for Seniors, and Hot Lunch Programs for Hungry Children. Republicans call that socialism, and they fight it tooth and nail. So I just want to put that out there and appeal to you. Could we indeed end world hunger for less than $7 billion for a fraction of what Elon Musk is willing to pay in cash to buy Twitter? Stay tuned. You're listening to The Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK. I'm Michael Benner. We'll be right back. As the go-to media outlet for Southern California progressive thinkers since 1959, KPFK is very proud of its legacy. But maintaining that legacy can be expensive. Become part of the KPFK community today by donating at kpfk.org. Just click on the Support KPFK button on the website to send your gift today. Because while ignorance can be costly, speaking truth to power is priceless. It's the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on your radio dial at 90.7 FM. For all of Southern California and streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Hey, thanks for staying with us here and uh, making it a point whenever possible to join us live at one in the afternoon on Tuesdays for the Mystery School. We're a show, as you probably know, about consciousness, about awareness and all the qualities that go with being conscious. And one of the questions, of course, that comes up when we consider the hard problems of awareness and consciousness and and, and what that even means is whether it's a continuum. Does consciousness end? Where does consciousness go when you're, you know, anesthetized? Do you have a general anesthesia and you are going in for surgery, some major operation perhaps. And and our question today is, does it continue after death? Is there life after life? Is consciousness a continuum? And we have the good fortune of having a real expert with us today. This is a gentleman whose work I have followed my entire life, going back to the mid-1970s, believe it or not. 
and I bet you know the name, and perhaps you even have one or more of his books. And we're so fortunate to have him with us today to speak about near-death experiences and life after life. Dr. Raymond Moody. And Raymond, good afternoon, and welcome to KPFK. Hello, Michael. I am just so delighted, honestly, as you know, to be with you. And thank you for this invitation. Well, you're very welcome. And, uh, you know, in thinking about the fact that uh, you wrote this first book, probably your best-known book, it was a bestseller at the time in the mid-1970s, Life After Life, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what what interested you in the subject and how you came to write such a book? Well, I say all time to myself, and I say to God all the time, thank you, God, for not inflicting religion on me. I was an astronomy buff. My dad was a was a you know a medic surgeon from World War II and a professional military officer too. So, you know, you can imagine him. And I thank God. I mean, I just played with my telescope and I I was uh, about the same time I fell in love with um Dr. Seuss and uh Lewis Carroll and uh just read their books constantly. And um speaking of consciousness, see I remember that night it was like I was I had my telescope, I was looking up and I had the thought that many people listening to this had you know, wow, you know like how big is this thing we're in? And uh, so your mind goes out to the wall, right? But then you say, but just a minute here, doesn't there have to be something on the other side of a wall, right? But the other option seems to be that it goes on forever, and that doesn't make any sense either. But that, to me, was a wonderful thought because I thought, like, oh, it's like Dr. Seuss and Lewis Carroll. I mean, it's the same form of discourse you have to use to think about the universe that Dr. Seuss and Lewis Carroll are. Uh, into, and I, I was already so. Um, I I learned when I went to college at University of Virginia at age eighteen that some people thought that it took the question of life after death seriously. To me, the main association to it was New New Yorker cartoons, and my, which my dad subscribed to, and um, and a Jack Benny movie that I. Is about I thought it was just a joke about an afterlife, and so there I was. I uh, I am P- Plato uh, became my hero on about page two <laughs> of reading the Republic at age of eighteen, and um, I was just bowled up by this man, and still am. And the fact that you know the whole Republic, really, what it's about is. The question of justice in relation to the question of, is there an afterlife? And uh, so that was where I woke up to the importance of this afterlife question. And in terms of consciousness, Michael, to me, it's always, consciousness has always been, even when I was a kid. I mean, I am a genuine skeptic who, and I find abhorrent those lunatics who don't even know what the word means and who characterizes themselves as skeptics. I'm a skeptic. And and so, uh, you know, I have never been able to get beyond my own consciousness in, in the sense that I know that I'm conscious. I knew when I was seven years old, all right, that is real, that is undeniable, okay? The next step that many people plunge into is saying, oh, well, the 
patterns in my consciousness recur. So therefore, there's an external physical world. That is a that's a crazy inference in my mind. I'm going to stick to where you know I can be sure. And so um, I love physics. By the way, I've studied astronomy and physics and chemistry, especially. I'm not. This is not anti-science here. This is just saying that philosophical issues sort of predate science. So in terms of consciousness, see, I just, when I started hearing these near-death experiences, the first living person I heard from was George Ritchie in 1965. Since then, there's been, you know, thousands of others. I I never realized as a professor of logic, you can't use Aristotelian logic to come to a conclusion about life after death, as David Hume brilliantly pointed out. And that's, that's where I am on that. And I realize why you can't. And at the same time, I got to say, I just give up. I mean, I just, I don't know what else to say. You know, this thing that goes back to Democritus versus Plato, uh, that on Plato looking at these near-death experiences and saying, yeah, this is real. Democritus, the atomist, saying, no, this is just the residual biological activity in the body. They're still fighting that one out today. <laughs> and uh, that's absurd. <laughs> you know, it's like as though the only two logical options are that number one there's life after death or that number two that it's as they say today oxygen deprivation well one of my own medical school professors a very wise woman in about 1972 or 73 told me about having the same experience as she was trying to resuscitate her mother okay and this is a very common thing that bystanders at the bedside of somebody else who does pass away have all of these elements that we associate with as a near-death experience. Some of the bystanders say they get out of their body and they go partway toward this light with grandma. Other people say they see grandma light up, that the room becomes like an almost an Escher drawing kind of situation where they find themselves in some different geometry. Um, I've had a lot of people tell me that they empathically co-lived the dying life review of I used to say they're a relative or a close, you know, love, loved one. But now I have to say occasionally the doctors, <laughs> as a physician, got is baffled by this. He said he resuscitating this patient he had never laid eyes on in the ER. And he's see this guy's life review came up around. Here. And what I'm getting at is, I mean, there's something going on here that, to be honest, you know, we just can't compute this with our logic. That's the fact. And, and you know, some people are just terrified of it. I want to make it clear that uh, you were a professor of philosophy, but then you went back to school and studied medicine and became a medical doctor. So that's right. uh, Just want to establish your credibility here. Speaking as a medical doctor, (laughs) as well as a philosopher, you're saying that this theory of uh, oxygen deprivation just doesn't make any sense, doesn't hold water. Why? That, well, it's it's unverifiable because uh, the, the big problem in in his in, uh, in the history of philosophy is what's called the mind body problem, and that means that in the real world we there is there is no explanation of how the mind is is connected if it is with the body, and that, I mean that's the reality. Many people are terrified by that information, and so they want to plug that in with. Most commonly, a, a unprovable science, uh, like an unprovable philosophical theory known as epiphenomenalism, which is the idea that 
consciousness has no independent reality, but rather consciousness is a set, sort of byproduct or secondary offshoot of what they regard as the reality, which is the um, material substance and uh, the brain and the electrochemical reactions to it. And that's epiphenomenalism. And it's, it's sort of an assumption, I think. And, but it's not how do you philosophically justify it, that you can't justify it any more than you can justify the opposite take on it, which I have, which was articulated very brilliantly by George Barclay and his principles of human knowledge that to me, I just can't make the inferential leap from my consciousness to an to a world such as it's described in physics, although I'm not denying. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I, well, I, go, I love physics. I love that kind of thinking and so on, and I, I follow it. But I'm saying in terms of the ontological basis of it, really, I mean, I'm, I am the, a Peronian skeptic. It's To me, I've never been able to make that leap, as I see it, from the undoubted patterns in my consciousness to saying that and it's not just that i can't make that leap it's just that my life sort of leads me in a different direction than i you might be getting into this instinctively now uh, michael at your time of life but i spent a year as a geriatric psychiatrist in a well, i guess call it a vip clinic because in reality in a little town you know the chief of police and the local celebrities and city council and mayor, you know, they don't want to show up at the front door of the mental health clinic like the rest of us peons, right? And it's an understandable thing. These were wonderful people. So for a year, I just talked to the town celebrities who were older, you know, and and it was a wonderful experience. I was about 30. And repeatedly throughout that year, Michael, I heard the same formulation. It's like, Raymond, a lot of these people were there just, as you can imagine, just because they were lonely, right? And wanted somebody to talk to or situational stress. And um, I heard this repeated like, Raymond, the older I get, the more the impression develops. It's like uncanny as I look back on my life that it's been a movie or a script or a play or a drama. And uh, where that goes to in terms of your interest of consciousness, Michael, it strikes me that consciousness in the human sense is inherently narrative, except for the possible exception of a state like a mystical experience. Maybe it's not a narrative manifestation consciousness. But, you know, everything, what happens to you when, when, you, um, when something new happens to you? Your consciousness already uh, just folds it into the life story narrative. Right? It's automatic. Uh, the Kulikov effect, I think it is, and seen in cinematography where they say that um, they've learned that if you present any two images just randomly to a person, that the mind automatically starts weaving a narrative um, to connect it. And um, I was very impressed. I remember the day in 1964, in the spring of 1964, when I read David Hume's essay on immortality and saw how obviously true what he was saying. It's like, listen to this. It's right. He said, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. Now, there's an understatement. And then he went on to say some new species of logic is requisite for that purpose and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us 
to comprehend that logic. And logically, that is absolutely true, no matter how much parapsychologists or New Agers or whoever want to deny it. It happens to be true. Now, it's striking to me that in that context, David Hume said that to him, reincarnation was the only kind of vision of the afterlife or view of the afterlife that a philosophical person could entertain. And what I relate that to is I suspect that was probably because Hume was a historian, and I gather that he probably had realized the essential uh, nature, you know, the essential uh, aspect of narrative in human consciousness. So that's that's kind of the thought process I've been to, but I've just, I've arrived at the place I just, I, I can't draw a logical conclusion, but I don't know what else to say. Because I, in a way, it's, yeah, so that's my, well, my process. To me, what is so interesting about this field is um, we have this concept of the near-death experience where people appear to die and then come back. We had Dr. Eben Alexander on this program a few months ago. He wrote uh, Proof of Heaven about his experience as a neurosurgeon who effectively died or he was in a coma for seven days and he came out of it with a recollection of a rather remarkable experience. And like you, he's a medical doctor and highly credible. So you could call that an NDE, a near-death experience, and life after life, the idea of immortality. But we also need, I think, to sort of get our arms around the whole subject, talk about out-of-body experience. This this can happen in a variety of situations, like a trauma, you know, car accident. Uh, yes. Uh, I was in a severe motorcycle accident many years ago, and as I was flying through the air, <laughs> completely aware, I was rocket boy, I was completely aware of what was happening. And time dilated. Raymond, it was extraordinary how slow time went Mm -hmm. uh, and how variable it obviously became for me as I was experiencing. This was not a true out-of-body experience, but it was evidence that trauma, whether it's physical or emotional, can be such a jarring experience that we find ourselves perhaps with a, a kind of a uh, uh, a depersonalization, a kind of a fugue where you may literally look down at your body as separate from your awareness and then in other states just sort of feel like uh, and a lot of high anxiety young people experience this derealization or depersonalization where life feels like a dream. Yeah. You're sort of walking around in this fugue state. Yeah. So altered states, out-of-body experience, this is all part of it, isn't it? It is. And in the medical side of it, the way a doctor would come up with this is that, you know, would face this, is that uh, young people with derealization and depersonalization come in all the time and, you know, thinking there's something wrong with them, right? And uh, I had to explain to them, look, this is, this is about 50% of people will have an episode of derealization or depersonalization and that um 
and that it tends to not exist after about the age of 30. It's like tends to go away as it did in my case. And also that I realize what I recommend to them is that exercise generally. I just, mine went away. So in medical school, I ran 10 to 14 miles a day. And I just at that time, I never. I think dancing helps. (laughs) Exercise will definitely help. If they just start dancing, it goes away. You know, I can imagine that. I was really happy. My wife and I were going to do some dancing the other week, so I'd never managed. So I, I read up on how to do it and all, and we went there, and I, <laughs> they told me, no, sir, I'm sorry, we're not going to do the hokey pokey. So I'm not good at at uh, dancing, but, but you know, I noticed my, that, um, you know, I think that the whole common sense view of grief is not correct. And that's a little bit, let me, I think I can show you that very quickly. Okay. Because what we all say, we all know about the numbness, and the shock, right? The um, denial, the guilt, the anger, the uh, all of those things we know about. But if you think about it, those phenomena we experience in other situations as well that are not death. You can be angry or shocked or uh, guilty or all of these things without a death being involved. So, right? So what I'm saying is, yeah, those symptoms do occur in grief, but I say that those are the nonspecific symptoms of grief. Now, as a grief counselor, since before I went to medical school, people started coming to me. I just felt I had to, you know, hear, listen to them about their grieving problems. And so I've, I've done this since about 1970. And what where people come to me is not, oh, I, you know, shocked her. It's like, Raymond, I must be mo- losing my mind. And it's not from anger or it's from, you know, I went to the shopping mall the other day and my 30-something-year-old sister died a few weeks ago. And I I saw somebody who looked just like her from the back and I felt compelled, Dr. Moody, to run there. But I knew full well. I knew it wasn't her. But I, all right, now listen, a lot of people listening to this are going to recognize that. For six months after my mom died, every time... My wife and I would get in the car to go down to Macon, Georgia, where my family still live. Um, I would start going through my mental list of things I wanted to tell my mom, right? It, I forgot that my mom is dead. And sure, I would have said I was losing my mind if I hadn't heard that by then from hundreds of patients. So these things like searching for the loved one, even when you know that they're dead, the um, uh, the the feeling of uh, taking on the characteristics of the deceased. My best friend for 30 years was this wonderful guy named Milton Friedman, who was not the famous economist. My Milton always said, it's like there's two Milton Friedmans. One has the economic solution and the other has the economic problem. <laughs> and my Milton was this um, this um, speech writer for, for President um, Ford and he and I, I used to go up to my my I I am not Jewish but my favorite relative was and so I was I grew up on locks and a bagel okay for breakfast is my favorite breakfast and then but Milton um, his favorite breakfast was bacon and eggs which is something I just can't even think about well about two weeks after Milton died my wife and I were in the uh, the waffle shop. And when they he came and asked what I want, I said, I'll have bacon and eggs. And my wife almost dropped her fork. You know, what is this? And it took me a couple of weeks to put it together. Oh, that was like 
taking on the characteristics, see, as a way of, and it's a very common occurrence, or, or anniversary reactions, like people have some kind of unaccountable medical crisis on the anniversary of a loved one us dying. And most famously in American history, at, at Thomas Jefferson and uh, John Adams, both died on July uh, 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And when these kind of uncanny seeming things happen to people, they say, I must be losing my mind. So I think that, you know, it's like common sense about grief doesn't go deep enough. The, the things that really bring people to the doctor <laughs> are these other things that there's not in the standard list. You know, listening to you speak, I keep hearing in my head the nursery rhyme, Row Your Boat, which uh, the last line, of course, life is but a dream. And uh, I've been meditating over 40 years and focusing on what happens to my awareness in altered states. And I've always been fascinated with the dreams that I recall in the morning and sometimes that I experience a so-called lucid dream while I'm dreaming. And it's hard for me to talk about this whole field, near-death experience, out-of-body experience, life after life, without talking about depersonalization and, and derealization as we just have. And, and the whole idea of the lucid dream and the number of friends of mine who have already passed away who visit me in my dreams. And I'm sure a psychologist could suggest, oh, that's all projection, that's wish fulfillment, that's all about you. But, I mean, you know, Raymond, death to me seems like waking up from a dream. There you go. That's what I thought. That's what I really took it to heart, what my very informed and, and talented and brilliant elderly patients told me that the older you get, the more this you see it's a story. And uh, I think, you know, it's like, see, I'm a logician, too. I just and I every time I say that, I need to go on to explain my wonderful hero, Aristotle, in his book on fallacies, one of the fallacies he's identified, he identified was that of where you take a metaphor and literalize it. Right. And somebody might say, well, Raymond Moody, what you're doing there is you're taking one aspect of the human condition, namely the theater, and you're projecting out that that out as a whole into the whole as the whole, which would be a logical fallacy. But I say, Michael, that it happened the other way around. If you look at the history of how the theater originated, it's pretty wild. Historically, they had had this harvest festival. And where they, there was a chorus singing these stories, and unaccountably, for some reason, Thespis stepped forward and spake his own lines, created a sensation. What are the Greeks all about? Competition, the Olympic Games. Okay, so Pisistratus, I think it was, who was then, no, maybe not, but uh, then the king of Athens uh, said, let's have a contest to see who can write the best one of these. And uh, the first three contestants were Aeschylus. You can still see him playing today if you want to. Sophocles, same thing. And Euripides. Now, it took about 50 years for the theater to become a profession. And what I'm getting at here is I think the theater came about because these 
wise and thoughtful people like Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides had just figured this out from themselves for talking with their friends. That, yeah, the older you get, the more this, this is some kind of, well, Plato said the cave, right? Some sort well, of theater. Shakespeare has that great line about all the world is a stage and we are but player yes. entrances and our exits and I think we're not only the player, we are, as you said, the screenplay writers, the, we're the producer, yes. we sell the tickets, and we sweep up afterward. <laughs> That's right, and have the fun and learn things, hopefully, in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a short break, and we'll be back. This fascinating conversation is with my guest today, Dr. Raymond Moody, and I'll bet you know that name. He's the author, nearly 50 years ago, of real classic, a bestseller called Life After Life. He's written numerous other books since then. And that's our topic today. We're talking about immortality. Is there such a thing? If energy cannot be created or destroyed, maybe consciousness is an energy that cannot be destroyed. Near-death experience, out-of-body experience, dreams, uh, altered states, mystical experience. It's a huge field, a huge body. And uh, we're just playing in that pool today. And, and we'll be back with more if you stick around. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. Support comes from the Skirball Cultural Center. Presenting a concert with South Indian musician El Shankar. Friday, April 22nd. During this rare West Coast appearance, experience the Indo-Jazz performer's Carnatic vocals and electric violin playing as he fuses Eastern and Western musical traditions. El Shankar in concert, Friday, April 22nd. For more information, visit skirball.org. 90.7 FM is KPFK for all of Southern California. And we stream, of course, at kpfk.org. This program is podcast to virtually all podcatchers and aggregators and player apps. And we even post on YouTube. But um, it's really great to have you here live whenever you can make it. Join the group mind. And we're talking with Dr. Raymond Moody about life and death and whether it continues on. The whole idea of near-death experience, uh, let's, let's touch on this a little bit. Um, what do you see are some of the more common links that connect different stories of dying and coming back or the so-called NDE, near-death experience? What are some of the common uh, stories that people tell? When I was right, when I was trying to figure out how to present this, I used Wittgenstein's way of doing it. It's like a family resemblance. And um, what I mean by that is if you look at hundreds and hundreds of cases of near-death experiences, what you see is that there are about um, 15 or 20 elements that crop up again and again in these accounts. And... Um, one person may have one to three or four of them or eight or nine or ten or in rare cases, usually an extremely lengthy cardiac arrest. Some people may report the whole panoply of 15 or 20 things. And some of the more common things that people say is that when they come close to death, they, they, they hear the doctor or nurse 
say something like, oh, my God, he's dead or we have lost him. At that, uh, at that point, I have heard many people all around the world uh, use the same formulation, saying something like, as one person said, I have never been so alive as when I heard that doctor say I was dead. <laughs> and people say that um, they can see from above. They can see the doctor or nurse down below. They don't hear physical voices. It's rather that they say they understand what the doctor or nurses are thinking. So they, people talk about how quickly they drop the body, as it were, that they don't, they lose the identification with the body fairly quickly. A lot of people say that they, they don't even recognize at first that that's their body. But their um, attention quickly turns to states of consciousness that no matter how well educated or brilliant or how many languages they speak, they say there is just no words or no words for this. An idea that you would be familiar with from William James' characterization of mystical states is ineffable or indescribable. And people say that even though the words don't, that they're just the ones they're forced to come up with, they say they go through a passageway of some sort and come out on the other side into an incredibly brilliant and clear and warm and loving and comforting light. And in that light, say that relatives or friends of theirs who have already passed away are there almost as a kind of greeting committee and that... Um, they they recognize these people not because of physicality, because there is more, more physicality, but it's the personality and the memories and the presence that comes apart. Then people say um, that time seems to stand still during this and that they at some point they find themselves surrounded by a holographic panorama uh, that does not exist in time. It's just it's then they and in this. Review is every single thing they've ever done in their lives. And they re-witness this, not just from the perspective they had in that circumstance, but also from the perspective of those with whom they interacted. So one thing I think, I think this is interesting, Michael, that it's hard to draw inferences from these kind of experiences, as you've expressed. And But one thing I think we can draw an inference here that, as far as I can tell, is, is number one, astounding. But number two, logically correct, and that is, that isn't it true that what, what it happens here is that what this shows is that for many of us, life is a two-phase process. First, we, we lead the story forward as an actor or protagonist. Then time stands still. We witness the same events from the point of view of the other characters. So, in other words, life, for many of us, is a two-phase process. Whether there is or is not an afterlife, that is, to me, a remarkable fact. But, at some point, all of these people have to come back as they say, some say, I have no idea. I was just in that light, then I was back here with no sense of an interim. Others say, I was told I had to go back. You Things you left to complete. They're not told what those are, but they're forced to go back. Later, subsequently in life, they often do say, oh, now I see what that was. I had to come back. Then uh, 
So, you know, or some people say that, you know, they were given a choice. So and they come back transformed, saying that whatever they were chasing before knowledge, in my case, whatever they were chasing, that they see from this, that the whole point of this life we're in is to learn to love. Well, you say it's eminently logical. I certainly agree. The idea that makes perfect sense that we the only judgment we experience on the other side is ourselves looking at our impact on others, the the ultimate in empathy. If we experience the hurt that we caused others, mm-hmm. if we truly experience the impact, positive and negative and otherwise, that we have on other people, what an incredible learning experience. Yeah. Really? And then life starts to make sense. It's like, well, we're here to grow, to evolve, to to learn, to, one of the ways I like to say it is to redeem fear to love or ignorance to understanding. That's what we are as agents of learning and growing and healing yeah, and, exactly. and becoming more. So when these people have these reports of near-death experience and they say, well, Nobody judged me. I reviewed my life. Uh, 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 I, there was a there was a movie. I wonder if you ever saw this. About must be twenty twenty five years ago. Called Powder, about an exceptional uh, young. Trying to remember, I think he was like an alien of some sort, and he was so compassionate. And he encounters in one scene a hunter. And the hunter has just shot a deer. And this young, unusual fellow had the ability to cause the hunter to feel what the deer was feeling. Interesting. So the hunter went from being all excited that he had shot this helpless animal to feeling the pain that the animal and the terror and the fear and the confusion. Yeah. The animal felt weighing around, having this hole blown in its side. And it, it gosh, it's it so moved me mm-hmm. that I thought, would that we could be that empathetic. Yes. What what a different world this would be. An empathy helmet. Seriously, it seems possible. Yeah. You know? It could be, I guess. If only we we're conscious enough, there's that word again, to appreciate the impact we have on people when we are cruel, when we are even just insensitive, when we're, yeah. when we're even apathetic and not listening and not engaged and so self-involved that we often don't realize just a little bit of kindness is so easy to do and makes such a huge difference. Do we have to die again and again and again to figure this out? Yeah. Maybe. Well, I tell you, it's changed my life. I, I, it's just, I will say this. Number one, I'm hoping to recuse myself from my own life review for some of those reasons you just touched on. You know, I'm so embarrassed. And, and it's, it's especially, you know, it's when you think that these are apparently open access. I mean, bystanders, they're at the bedside commonly you know very often co-live the dying life review of the person who's passing away which sounds so embarrassing until you realize we're all probably got pretty much the same secrets 
right? But it, it's uh, it's made an impression on me, and I got to say, George Ritchie, the the finest individual I ever knew in my life, is the first living person I heard this from. And George, years later in 1976, he stopped by my house very urgently in Charlottesville. George was like the southern gentleman type. It was not like you, but he just, you know, just look, I got to come by. Didn't even sit sit down. And he said, the gist of the message was that, Raymond, this experience makes your humanity even more of a burden. And I understand the context of that remark, but in a, I just pointless in this context to talk about it but in terms of what he was to translate that into blunt terms what he was getting at is that even after this experience it's very hard to get through the average day without wanting to choke at least one person and that near-death experience doesn't make that go away it sets people off on a spiritual journey where they do pray, and George used to wake up at 4 o'clock every morning to pray and meditate before he went to see his patients. And uh, so, you know, it does, it's not like going to make you, you know, pure overnight, but it, it sets people on a pathway. Well, I think part of the way of discussing this, from my point of view, is that human beings are sort of strung out between an animal nature and a spiritual nature. Mm-hmm. And the, the animal nature includes a very strong drive to survive. And anger, of course, is a defense mechanism to scare the danger away. So I think there's this reflexive part of us that can get angry and hostile and even violent, especially men. You know, echoes of a of an ancient survival drive, and then there's this higher nature that aspires to be kinder and gentler, uh, wise and compassionate, uh, empathetic and understanding. And here we are, kind of a rope being pulled in both directions. We we have that ambivalence. You know, we're we're pulled toward the animal nature when we become anxious and afraid. We're attracted to the more divine nature when we feel peaceful and, and, and safe. And therein lies the rub. That's our dilemma is that we're sitting on that fence and what do we aspire to be? Are we going to knuckle under to the animal side and be cynical and say, well, it's a violent world. Everybody's nasty. I got to get mine and follow that self-centeredness. Or am I going to be, more generous and patient and, and tolerant and aspire to my better angels, so to speak. I think that's the paradox that we're a little bit of both. I'm, I'm struggling to, with that today, Michael. I have been for about three days now. After that vile, beastly, rotten-headed second coming of Martha Mitchell... And the collusion with Lord Justice Dullard on the Supreme Court have tried to force me into a religion under the rule of Comrade Fatso. And that may sound pretty bizarre, in it, but, you know, what else is going on? It's like this lunatic of a screaming woman who's trying to see how many times she can squeeze the word Jesus into the 
a sentence is conspiring with the president's office manager and then her Supreme Court Lord Justice Dullard husband votes to keep them. I mean, it's just so outrageous. I'm glad I was a comedian for a while because, you know, that's one of the ways you can look at this without raging. But my point is, I, you know, I mean, I'm very upset about this and I, you know, I have been thinking those angry things. You know, I was fascinated by homicides since I was, as a kid, I went around with my uncle who was a cop and then later with my brother. And uh, I've always, you know, respected law enforcement. And um, I um, so eventually ended up, I was a forensic psychiatrist. And in my career, I probably talked to, as a minimum, 300 murderers. And uh, more likely, because you, you sort of stop counting after a while, but more likely around 400 people who had committed homicide. And the sociopaths, you can never... You can never get into them because it's like what they're always doing is trying to process what you say. And then they try to figure out what you want to hear and play it. So you play it back to you. So you can't get in that mind. But the, like mostly we had paranoid schizophrenic killers and mass murderers, and people like that, where the insanity question had been raised. And um, and, and that group uh, and plus the, you know, judges would ask me to, you know, interview the the town deacon of the church who was 55 years old and made the pass at the high school game when he was 18 and still the pictures not but you know the whole picture and that you know that any hires a psychopath brother to kill his inconvenient girlfriend and so the judge says raymond just maybe there's something a screw loose but so i talked to a lot of people who were sane and committed homicide they were much harder to understand than the paranoid schizophrenics who had done it yeah. because of the voices or whatever but um in that context michael what i found is that all those people that in the national Enquirer are portrayed as the worst of the worst like a man who ground his mother and father up into meat and uh and and yet when you talk to these people and you get to know them you know you you can see that that lovable core <laughs> yeah it's a real paradox it's well you can real, yeah yeah I, I, it is. I it is. At all. It is. Raymond, I wish we had more time. You're a joy to chat with, and uh, I really appreciate you making yourself available to us today. Can we do this again down the calendar sometime? Let's do. It, it, can I make a an extraordinary statement now? But I am completely willing to, and you can edit this out, but I am ready to make a statement here. Seriously, Michael, and I think I'm not trying to sell a book here. Honest to God, folks, I'm not. But this book, Making Sense of Nonsense, it sets out what I claim to be a major breakthrough in the rigorous rational investigation of life after death, where we can now prepare ourselves in advance so that when subsequently we happen to have a near-death experience, we can articulate it in a new way. Then comparing the previous reports to these new ones generated in this way, we'll be able to triangulate. I know it sounds bizarre right now, but... I claim that, and and if you want to, me to send you this book and read it, and I would appreciate your honest, logical evaluation of the case I make, because unless I'm delusional, we do now have a genuinely rigorous, rational means of investigating the question of life after death. That's what I want to claim. And and the reason I'm wanting to claim it is not to pat myself on the back or to start a new religion, but rather 
to ask, honestly, people to refute me. Because, see, if somebody can find a hole in my reasoning, then I'm, I'm led closer to the truth. On the other hand, if, as happened so far, everybody so far says, yeah, I can't find a flaw in it. Then we're off into a whole new line of study of this big, big question. How do people get more information about you? Do you have a website? What's the best way to follow up? Yes, it's called um, it's lifeafterlife.com. Lifeafterlife.com. And Life After Life is the classic. The book Raymond just referred to is Making Sense of Nonsense. And he has uh, half a dozen other books, too. Raymond Moody, my guest today. Doctor, thank you very much. And uh, we will have you back. Thank you, Michael. You know, you and I are about the same age, have so many of the same memories. To me, this is just great fun. Thank you so much. Well, whoever passes over first will hold the door open for the other. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Good. You're listening to The Ageless Wisdom on KPFK. Thanks for being with us. Join us every Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock. And whether it's, you know, on the radio, 90.7 FM, or streaming at KPFK. This program is also available on its website, theagelesswisdom.com. More about me at michaelbenner.com. Stay tuned for Carrie Harrison. I want to thank my producer, Mark Brisky. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner. <laughs>